1: I'm John Dickerson in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, America returns to the world stage with President Biden's first trip overseas. After more than a year of long distance Zoom diplomacy, leaders of the G7 looked each other in the eye in Cornwall, with President Biden and his family receiving a warm reception from America's allies as he kicked off his first trip abroad since taking office.
2: It's wonderful to to listen to the Biden administration it's fantastic. It's a breath of fresh air. I think it's great to have uh, the U.S. president part of the club and
1: uh, very willing to, to to cooperate. Elbows were bumped, barbecue was shared on the beach, and of course, there was cake.
3: I don't think this is going to work. There is a
4: knife in my I know there is.
1: <laughs> <laughs> president Biden didn't show up to the gathering empty handed. The United States will purchase a half a billion doses. A Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine to donate
5: to nearly 100 nations that are in dire need in the fight against this pandemic.
1: But America's friends will soon be in the rearview mirror as Mr. Biden prepares for a face-to-face meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin. We're not seeking conflict with Russia, but I've been clear, the United States will respond
5: in a robust and meaningful way when the Russian government engages in
1: harmful activities. We'll preview the sit-down with Secretary of State Antony Blinken and mark the end of an era with a report from Jerusalem as Israelis welcome a new government and say goodbye to the old one. Plus, we'll hear from Andy Slavitt, a former senior advisor to the White House COVID response team. We'll also check in with former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. And as negotiations on Capitol Hill over a massive infrastructure bill begin to show some bipartisan promise, we'll talk with a key dealmaker, Maine Republican Senator Susan Collins, about the prospects for an agreement. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. President Biden wrapped up the first leg of his first foreign trip this morning, signing an agreement with G7 leaders vowing new cooperation in the fights against COVID and climate change. Before, he headed off to Brussels, where he'll hold his first meeting with NATO leaders. And then it's off to Geneva for a meeting with Vladimir Putin. It's a jam-packed trip, which also included a meeting with the Queen. Before that, President Biden took questions from reporters.
5: And I THINK HOW WE ACT AND WHETHER WE PULL TOGETHER AS DEMOCRACIES IS GOING TO uh, DETERMINE WHETHER OUR GRANDKIDS LOOK BACK 15 YEARS NOW AND SAY, DID THEY STEP UP?
1: WE BEGIN THIS MORNING WITH SECRETARY OF STATE ANTONY BLINKEN WHO IS IN BRUSSELS. GOOD MORNING, MR. SECRETARY. JOHN, GOOD TO SEE YOU. MR. SECRETARY, THE PRESIDENT WROTE IN THE WASHINGTON POST THAT one of the purposes of this meeting would be to demonstrate that democracies can confront autocracies. But the Russian gas pipeline is going into Germany. China is heavily invested in many European countries. What appetite did the president find for confrontation among these democracies whose economies are so enmeshed with autocracies?
2: Well, John, first, let's take a a, a step back. The the proposition that the president had uh, is we need to demonstrate that democracies can deliver in all sorts of ways to better the lives of our people. And that's exactly uh, what he's demonstrated just in the last couple of days alone at the G7. Uh, look at what's come out of this uh, this summit. I've, by the way, I've been involved in these G7s for probably 25 years. This is the most consequential one uh, I've been involved in. A billion shots in arms uh, around the world uh, with the COVID vaccine, uh, dealing uh, in a very meaningful way uh, with climate change in terms of getting a, a prohibition on financing uh, coal projects around the world, the, the largest single contributor uh, to global warming. Uh, a commitment on the 15 uh, uh, percent minimum global corporate tax, uh, a powerful way of increasing the tax base for countries around the world, avoiding a race to the bottom uh, in terms of corporate taxation, making sure countries have the resources to invest uh, in their people, in infrastructure, in health care, uh, in, uh, in technology, and new markets for our products uh, at the same time. Uh, and, uh, uh, and finally, this Build Back Better World, which is taking to the world what uh, we're already doing at home, helping uh, use this moment, this inflection point, to pool the resources of all of the democracies to invest in and get the private sector to invest in low- and middle-income countries to strengthen uh, the- their, their health systems, their infrastructure, right. Those- their technology. Uh, and that's going to also benefit us. So I, I say all this because it's important that Uh, The president's basic proposition: We have to show democracies coming together can deliver real results. That's already what we've shown. Right. Uh, When it's when it comes to dealing with. Go ahead, John.
1: Well, those are, those are some results. But when it comes to confronting China, I mean, you've talked about the ongoing genocide mm. in mm-hmm. China. That's very strong language. Other U.S. officials have said that China is assaulting basic human values. What appetite is there among those the president is meeting to use that kind of harsh language? And at the end of the day, what does that language do to change Chinese behavior in the first place?
2: Well, first, uh, one of the things you're seeing out of the G7 uh, is in the communique that I think is about to be released, uh, a focus on China. Go back to 2018, the last time the G7 came together in person, there wasn't even a mention of China in the communique. Uh, I think that is evidence in and of itself that countries are concerned uh, across the board in, uh, in, in, in many of China's actions. It's a complicated relationship for, uh, for virtually all of the G7 countries. It's in some aspects adversarial, in other aspects competitive and in other aspects, cooperative. But the common denominator, and I think this is where these countries are coming together, is we need to be able to uh, uh, deal with China in all of those areas, coming from a position of strength and coming from a united position. I I think what the president was, was able to do in these last couple of days was bring countries closer together in dealing with some of the challenges posed by China. Uh, and we can talk about Xinjiang or any of the others, if you like.
1: I'd like to move on to Russia in a moment, but let me ask about the Chinese have said they're not going to help the U.S. investigate the, the potential of a lab leak in the start of COVID-19. Does the U.S. have mm. any sway in getting cooperation from the Chinese?
2: I think the, uh, not only the United States, but the, the world is insisting on it. Uh, one of the things that's coming out of the G7 uh, is an insistence that the WHO uh, be able to move forward with China uh, cooperating on this so-called phase two report to build on the initial report uh, which had real problems with it not the least of which was china's failure to, to cooperate and here's the thing john coming out of this we we need a couple of things we need to understand what happened we need to get to the bottom of it and we're working on that through the WHO. We're also working on that ourselves. The president ordered a 90-day sprint led by our intelligence community to try to get to the bottom of it. And the main purpose is to make sure that knowing what happened, why it happened, how it happened, we can put in place what's necessary to prevent it from happening again, or at least to mitigate uh, the next outbreak. China has to cooperate with that. Transparency, access for uh, international experts, information sharing, That has to happen. And again, I think you're seeing countries coming together to to insist on that.
1: Let me move on to Russia. I asked one of your predecessors, Condoleezza Rice, former secretary of state, how to judge the meeting with Putin. She said, ignore the theater review, uh, the the theater reviews of it, ignore the moment, but look several months down the road to see if the Russians have gotten the messages that have been delivered privately. Mm -hmm. So what should we look for in six months or so that will show that there have been fruits of this actual meeting?
2: Look, I think Secretary Rice is exactly right. This is uh, this is not a a light switch uh, moment. This is about the president uh, wanting to do two things, and he's been very clear about it: Uh, to tell uh, President Putin directly that uh, we seek a more predictable, stable relationship, Uh, and if uh, we're able to do that, there are areas where it's in our mutual interest to, to cooperate. But if Russia continues to take reckless and aggressive actions, will respond forcefully as we've already done when it comes to election interference, when it comes to the solar wind cyber attack, when it comes to the uh, attempt to poison and kill uh, Mr. Navalny. And this is a beginning uh, of testing that proposition. And uh, Russia will have to decide by its actions uh, which direction it wants to go in. And I think Secretary Rice is is exactly right that we'll see that play out uh, in the months ahead.
1: Let me ask you, Russia has joined a new agreement against cyber hacking. Um, BUT THOSE KINDS OF AGREEMENTS HAVE EXISTED BEFORE AND THIS IS WHY PEOPLE LOOK TO THESE KINDS OF INTERNATIONAL MEETINGS WITH A HEAVY DEGREE OF SKEPTICISM. WHY, why SHOULD THE UNITED STATES TRUST RUSSIA IN mm. THIS NEW AGREEMENT WHEN THE UNITED STATES BELIEVES THAT RUSSIA HAS BROKEN ALL THE PREVIOUS ONES?
2: IT'S NOT A MATTER OF TRUST. I THINK SOMEONE ONCE SAID uh, uh, TRUST BUT uh, uh, VERIFY. I'D SAY DON'T TRUST AND VERIFY. Uh, WE'LL SEE BY RUSSIA'S ACTIONS. Uh, whether it uh, will make good on on any commitments it makes. Here's the thing. We've now been uh, the victim of ransomware attacks, and uh, many of these attacks come from criminal organizations, not necessarily from states, but countries have an obligation. No responsible country should be in the business of harboring criminal groups uh, engaged in, in these attacks, and this is one of the things... That president Biden going to be taking up with President Putin.
1: When During the early days after 9-11, the U.S. position was, if you harbored a terrorist, you're just like the terrorist. Is, is there an analogy there on cybercrime?
2: Yeah, there is an analogy there uh, because we know uh, the tremendous damage this can do. Uh, we know the, uh, the vulnerabilities. One of the things the president is uh, insisting on is a very aggressive effort, first of all, to shore up our defenses and, and that means working very closely with the private sector since a lot of this infrastructure is actually uh, controlled by the private sector not the government it means um, putting in place uh, all of the tools that we need to disrupt uh, these uh, ransomware uh, networks and, and efforts that requires a lot of coordination with other countries that's exactly what we've been engaged in including uh, here at the, uh, at the G7 and, and, and now at NATO uh, and uh, again making it very clear that uh, any country that harbors Uh, these groups. Um, uh, That's not a sustainable proposition. And uh, we're going to need to, uh, uh, to take action to stop that.
1: As an illustration of the trickiness of the U.S. relationship with Russia, on the one hand, the U.S. is working with Russia to revive the nuclear deal with Iran. On the other hand, The Washington Post is reporting Russia is preparing to supply Iran with advanced satellite systems, which threaten U.S. interests. So are the Russians going to pay a penalty for offering those advanced satellite systems, or do we need them in the nuclear talks? So maybe we'll move past that.
2: Uh, first, when it comes to the nuclear talks, we're not trading uh, any other uh, issues or interests uh, for the sake of the nuclear talks. They will, will stand and fall, or fall uh, on their own merit uh, and, and on their own weight. Uh, So I want to be very clear about that. Second, I'm not going to get ahead of the president. Uh, I suspect he'll be taking this up uh, with President Putin in a couple of days. But, John, let me say one more thing on this. Um, This meeting with President Putin is not happening in a vacuum. The president will be coming off of the G7, uh, the NATO summit, uh, the meeting with the European Union's leaders. And collectively, when we bring the world's democracies together, uh, it's an incredibly powerful force militarily, economically, politically, diplomatically. A major poll just came out that showed that across these countries, confidence in American leadership, uh, President Biden's leadership in these countries is at 75 percent. That's up from 17 percent a year ago. So we are now in a position uh, as a result of reinvigorated American leadership to uh, work and to bring all of these countries together in common cause and common purpose, including dealing with challenges from Russia or China. Final quick question, Mr. Secretary.
1: Iran has made a lot of progress since the nuclear deal fell apart. A lot of that is in material; other is knowledge. How do you put mm-hmm. the knowledge back in a box that they've gained during the period that the, the that's right. agreement fell apart?
2: John, that's a great question, and you're exactly right. Uh, that since uh, we pulled out of the nuclear deal, and then Iran uh, began to ignore the constraints that the deal had imposed on it, it has been galloping forward, uh, and it's enriching uh, more material. It's enriching uh, at, uh, at at higher uh, levels, degrees. Uh, than we're allowed uh, under the agreement. And you're right, it is gaining knowledge. And if this goes on uh, a lot longer, if they continue to gallop ahead, um, then you're right, they're going to have knowledge that's going to be very hard to reverse, which I think puts some urgency in seeing if we can put the uh, nuclear problem back in the box that the agreement had put it in, that it, unfortunately Iran is now out of as a result of us pulling out of the agreement. All right, Secretary Blinken, we're out
1: of time. Thank you so much for being with us. And Face the Nation will be back in a minute. Stay with us. Now, for a discussion about matters back here at home, a bipartisan group of senators announced a new infrastructure package last week that would cost $1.2 trillion over eight years. One member of the group is Senator Susan Collins, who joins us from Bangor, Maine. Good morning, Senator.
4: Good morning. So
1: the the official talks between the White House and Republicans had broken down. You're now a part of a group that says you have an agreement. Why will your agreement work where the previous previous negotiations failed?
4: Well, first, I want to give credit to uh, Senator Capito who led the previous negotiations because she certainly advanced the ball. Where ours is different is, first of all, it's bipartisan. We have five Republicans and five Democrats who got together to hammer out the framework for a targeted, responsible infrastructure package. One way that it differs is that it includes Provisions for resiliency, for strengthening uh, the materials that we use to, to build our roads and bridges and to strengthen our electrical infrastructure. It includes some energy provisions that are important to the administration and to many of our members as well.
1: And what about the sticky question of how to pay for all of this? Uh, Where does it, I've heard there's reports that it might include a gas tax increase?
4: There won't be a a gas tax increase and we won't be undoing the 2017 uh, tax reform bill. Let me talk about three of the pay-fors. One is the implementation of an infrastructure financing authority. That's very similar to the state revolving funds that we used for sewer and water projects. And it's a bipartisan proposal that was first put forth by Senators Mark Warner and Roy Blunt. A second would be to repurpose some of the COVID funding that has not been spent. Uh, In the $1.9 trillion package that was enacted in March, there were restrictions on what the funding could be used for. It could be used for water, sewer, and broadband. We would make it more flexible so it could be used for infrastructure projects. And third... THERE WOULD BE A PROVISION FOR ELECTRIC VEHICLES TO PAY THEIR FAIR SHARE OF USING OUR ROADS AND BRIDGES. RIGHT NOW THEY ARE LITERALLY FREE RIDERS BECAUSE THEY ARE NOT PAYING ANY GAS TAX. SO THOSE ARE THREE OF THE PROVISIONS THAT WE'VE TAKEN A LOOK AT.
1: ONE OF THE OBJECTIONS TO TAKING BACK SOME OF THE MONEY THAT WAS IN THE COVID RELIEF PLAN IS THAT SOME OF THE STATES HAVE REALLY BENEFITED. THEY'VE DONE done MUCH BETTER THAN THEY THOUGHT THEY WOULD. Uh, THEIR TAX RECEIPTS ARE UP. But that's not true of all states. And so some states are saying you can't take away this money that's helping us recover from COVID to then use it for infrastructure.
4: Well, I've talked to governors who are enthusiastic about the prospect. And when you have a state like California, which has an enormous surplus and yet we're giving billions of additional dollars to that state, I think we can find room uh, to repurpose some of this money. In addition, if you look at what has been spent, there literally is hundreds of billions of dollars in the pipeline going back to the initial CARES Act that was passed in March of last year. Uh, we have put an enormous amount of money and rightfully so into fighting COVID. Last year we had five bipartisan bills and this year uh, President Biden added another 1.9 trillion dollars, that included a lot of funding that was not directly for fighting COVID.
1: If in this bill a lot of what's falling out are the president's priorities on child care and on elder care, is that right?
4: We are focusing on the traditional infrastructure definition: roads, bridges, airports, seaports, waterways, highways. Let me ask. Broadband. AND I THINK THAT MAKES SENSE.
1: LET ME ASK, LEAVING ASIDE THE WORD INFRASTRUCTURE FOR A MOMENT, THE ARGUMENT THE PRESIDENT AND HIS SUPPORTERS MAKE IS THAT IN TODAY'S ECONOMY, PARTICULARLY FOR WOMEN WHO HAVE borne A GREATER SHARE OF THE BURDEN WHEN IT COMES TO CHILD CARE AND ELDER CARE, THAT IF YOU DON'T PROVIDE HELP FOR THOSE KINDS OF THINGS, THEY ARE AS MUCH OF AN IMPEDIMENT TO THOSE WOMEN Having a shot at the American dream and the being in the American workforce as any infrastructure program. Do you agree, leaving the word infrastructure apart, do you agree with that premise that there are those barriers?
4: I do think we need to take a look at barriers to the workforce, at the need for more home health care. There's no one who's been a bigger advocate of home health care than I have been and we also have to learn lessons from the pandemic that we can use for example telemedicine to reach people in an effective way but we need to reimburse for that so we can look at these issues but they are not infrastructure and they should be considered separately and I believe they will be. And what the
1: opponents, of course, of your position would say is the reason to consider them infrastructure is that if you say we'll leave it for another day, is that 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 other day never comes. And that the reason to try and put them in this bill is to force focusing on issues that are vital to a certain portion of the public. You don't buy that argument.
4: Well, first of all, I think these issues are important. And that's why, for example, in the 2017 Tax Reform Act, uh, we made the child tax credit refundable for the first time. And we took advantage of uh, a tax incentive to expand uh, the incentive and the help that you would get if you're taking care of an elderly relative or a child. We put money in the COVID bills to expand childcare centers. And I've seen YMCAs right here in Bangor, Maine, expand their childcare programs. So I think we need to look at what is out there, but there is no doubt uh, that this is an area where we need to look at our reimbursement. We need to look at our Child Care Development Fund and we need to look at the tax code, and I think we can and should do that.
1: Let me move on to the question of a New York Times report this week that said that during the Trump administration, the Department of Justice um, subpoenaed some information from Apple that uncovered the accounts of two Democrats on the House Intelligence Committee. You're on the Senate Intelligence Committee. What does that report – what's your reaction to that report?
4: There are two serious allegations here. One has to do with whether or not there was a leak of classified information by members of Congress. But the second, which is also important, is has the Justice Department abused its power by going after members of Congress or the press for partisan political political purposes? And that's why I support the deputy attorney general's request that the inspector general of the Department of Justice t- do an in-depth investigation of both of these issues. That is really important.
1: Let me ask you another intelligence-related uh, question. You recently helped legislation get passed that would, that would treat victims of so-called Havana syndrome. These are, are the U.S. officials working in Cuba who were attacked by some kind of of weapon. Um, There are speculation among officials that the Russians are behind that weapon. Do you feel that that's sufficiently true, that President Biden should bring it up in his meeting with President Putin this week?
4: Certainly the Russians are one of the key suspects. We don't know for sure. But keep in mind, there have been more than 100 American public servants who have been injured by these directed energy attacks. And we need not only to take care of their medical needs but also to find out who it is. I think that Secretary Blinken has done a great job as Secretary of State, but I hope the president will bring up this issue with with President Putin directly.
1: Excellent. And we're out of time. Senator Collins, thank you so much for being with us. If you're not able to watch the full Face the Nation live, you can set your DVR or we're available on demand. Plus, you can watch us through our CBS or Paramount Plus app. And we'll be right back with former White House Senior Advisor for COVID Response, Andy Slavitt, and former FDR-FDA Commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Stay with us.
6: When you choose Organic Valley, not only will you be enjoying great-tasting dairy, you'll help to save over 1,600 small organic family farms,
1: Welcome back to face the nation. Several major cities in the U.S. are racing to reopen to full capacity this weekend. Stadiums, bars and restaurants were packed with crowds. But health officials warn the pandemic is not yet over as variants loom and as portions of the country remain unvaccinated. CBS News senior national correspondent Mark Strassman has more in Atlanta.
5: Let me get your first.
1: In California,
5: COVID is off to summer camp. At least, that's the worry. Campers wear masks too young for the vaccine.
2: It feels really good. It feels really scary. I mean, we've, you know, we've been through a lot of change.
5: Anxiety lingers because America's vaccination drive has fizzled, nationally now at fewer than one million new shots a day, down two-thirds from the April peak.
0: There are plenty of people Um, across the country in every state that still haven't been vaccinated. That droop in demand,
5: despite the Delta variant's worrisome surge, now looking unlikely, President Biden's July 4th goal, 70% of American adults with at least one shot. 14 states have met it already, led by Vermont at 83%. Close, six other states and the District of Columbia. But 15 states languish under 55%.
4: The first one is
5: 45. Various states now turn to vaccine promotions. The District of Columbia is buying you a beer. Washington State is high on its promotion. Joints for jabs. And in Alabama... Come on over to Tallalga Super
2: Speedway, the biggest, baddest racetrack on the planet, and take two laps.
5: In NASCAR country, this promotion took the checkered flag, right? Wrong. Fewer than 100 people showed up. Vaccine passports remain polarizing. 15 states have banned them, but rules for businesses vary. In Wisconsin, this children's museum requires proof of vaccination or wear a mask. An angry state lawmaker leaned into this hot take on history. The Gestapo wants to see your papers, please.
1: No business has a right to your medical information, and I stand by it.
5: Under a new Texas law, businesses that require proof of vaccination can be denied state contracts. Still, Methodist Hospital in Houston suspended dozens of nurses after they refused to get vaccinated. A federal judge sided with the hospital this weekend. But for other businesses, the personnel challenge is hiring. Incentives include sign-on bonuses, higher pay, even college tuition. Another reason to take a job? Necessity. 25 states say they're ending enhanced weekly unemployment benefits. Here in Georgia, Vice President Kamala Harris will drop in later this week to promote the vaccine. This state's vaccination rate is well below the national average, so low
1: it has turned down millions of additional doses. John? Mark Strassman, thank you. CBS News senior foreign correspondent Elizabeth Palmer is in London with more on the continuing COVID crisis around the world.
7: Good morning, with plenty of vaccine available, COVID is now in retreat in North America and also in Europe, but not so in the global South. And there is growing concern for Africa, where cases are on the rise in 14 countries. In Chad, in Central Africa, the very first vaccines have just been rolled out. Health officials are thanking their lucky stars that infection rates so far haven't skyrocketed. Not so in Uganda, which has just closed its schools in a hurry and declared a lockdown after cases there rose more than 100% in a week. Ghana's public health network is also trying to hold the line against the virus. In partnership with an American company, ZipLine, it's pioneering a system to cold pack and fly vaccine by drone to remote villages. But the shocking truth is that to date only 1% of sub-Saharan Africans have been immunized. The G7 countries this week pledged to donate a billion vaccine doses to poorer countries, and half of them would come from America. It's not enough, but it is a start, says the WHO's Africa director, Matshidso Moeti. The U.S. President Biden's plan to purchase and donate half a billion Pfizer vaccines is a monumental step forward. So the tide is starting to turn. On the other side of the world, in South America, COVID is surging. Many of Peru's far-flung communities have neither vaccine nor ICUs. Peru's government revised its COVID data two weeks ago and discovered it has the most deaths per capita in the world. In Paraguay, huge lines have formed at vaccination centers. The take-up there may be driven in part by the health ministries deciding to publish on its website the name of every person who gets a shot. And once again, it's Brazil that leads in both numbers of COVID cases and deaths, though Rio de Janeiro has managed to vaccinate almost half of all adults in the city. And finally, travel between the U.K. and the United States. It remains complicated and expensive. Now, the governments have set up a task force, but that probably means no streamlined rules anytime soon. John?
1: Liz Palmer, thank you, Liz. We go now to Andy Slavitt, who most recently served as President Biden's senior advisor for COVID response. He joins us from Minneapolis to discuss his new book, Preventable. The inside story of how leadership failures, politics and selfishness doomed the U.S. coronavirus response. Good morning. morning, John. Let's start with the biggest preventable mistake. What was it?
0: Well, John, I think it's easy to see some of the technical mistakes we made as a country. Uh, and uh, you're not, not, with the CDC not having enough tests and not enough face masks and so forth. But we also have to acknowledge the fact that, that we've made some political mistakes. And while this isn't primarily a political book, um, a culture of denying science, uh, denying the, the very virus and, and sowing divisions wasn't helpful. But I would argue that perhaps the thing we have to be most concerned about and most focused on are, the, are, are what role we all played. Uh, you know, this was an uh, incredibly difficult period of time. But when we look at one another, um, the question is, did we do enough? Did we sacrifice even a little bit uh, for the health and for the business and for the—for for others. You know, we are, we are a generation that has not sacrificed in a long, long time in this country. And I think, you know, we all have to acknowledge that, despite everything else, the technical and the, the political, we all played a role in this, too.
1: Do you think that the uh, shifting nature, which is the nature of public health information—you don't have perfect information— that that contributed to what you're talking about in terms of the public response, which is the, the public heard certain advice at the beginning, let's say, about masks, and then that changed. Experts will say, well, that's the very nature of information. It changes. What many in the public heard was, well, they don't know what they're talking about.
0: Well, there's a question to why was our tolerance for that so low? I mean, the problem is, you, you have to believe in, in science when there are things that are going on you can't see with your naked eye. And this virus had a lot of properties spreading asymptomatically, so you didn't know you were carrying it or spreading it, spreading exponentially, so you didn't know—you couldn't picture how fast it was growing. That really required you to, to listen to scientists and understand uh, the scientific process. We as a country, I think, had a tough time with this. I think certain, certain uh, people were, were, were embracing it and following it along, but other people just, I think, kind of cynically exploited the divisions so that if, if a scientist changed their mind, it was an opportunity to say, see, they don't know what they're talking about, but I do, or they don't know what they're talking about, so we don't need to listen to them. And, you know, I think that may have been a unique experience in our country where that was exploited a little bit more than, than just the sort of the natural confusion that occurs in the kind of fog of war. So fog of war is the perfect
1: expression to use. So we need to have the habits of mind for the next one of these that we face, as we surely will, the habits of mind to allow for the fog of war, which is people who are working hard but just make natural mistakes. But then also still have enough confidence to listen to what they're saying so that we do the right thing?
0: Well, there's no question about it. And there's other decisions you know, that we made that I don't even know we were conscious of making. You know, we classified roughly half the population as essential workers. Now, essential workers that are, that are taking care of us when we get sick, you know, we can understand that. But we had gobs and gobs of people who were, who were exposing to illness. There's a chapter in the book called, uh, called The Room Service Pandemic, where there are quite frankly, a number of people who did quite well during the pandemic, were quite comfortable and were at home getting deliveries, and I count myself among them. But there were other people who were growing food, growing our crops, who were delivering those crops, who were, who were working in meatpacking plants, working in grocery stores, every day had to go to work. And we, and we knowingly and willingly exposed a lot of people, while a lot of other people were comfortable. These are some deep, more deep, embedded things about us and about our society. And the, The book tries to tell the story of how that, um, how those decisions made without thinking about a pandemic, really came back to haunt us.
1: We've talked a lot about uh, American culture, the roles that experts play, Americans play. But let's now talk about the Trump administration. Give me your assessment of what's the most important thing to recognize about the Trump administration's handling of this.
0: So, well, we would have had uh, we would have had a, a pandemic without the Trump administration. The, but there were three, I think—I think deadly sins that the Trump administration made that played out. Um, the, the first was his power that he believed to deny the very existence of the virus, or the potency of it, and to get his followers to go along with it. Uh, you know, if he, if he simply hadn't done that and simply said, hey, we've got a problem, uh, we, we would have been in a very different situation. You know, the, the second was his, his, his quashing of dissent. Um, as, as, as I laid out in the book that comes out, um, early in this pandemic, in February, they sent out orders to the Department of Health and Human Services for 45 days. They were not even allowed to talk to the press, simply because Alex Azar wanted to say the expression that things were going fine but could change rapidly. They were, they really—and they, and, and that, whether it was that or Nancy Messonnier or Tony Fauci, anybody that disagreed with the narrative the president wanted was, was squashed. And then the third was, was, I think. Um, really almost extra credit, uh, was taking uh, the divisions in the country and playing, playing into them. Uh, and I think the sort of the populist nature—being a populist during a pandemic is really not a great combination, because you're going to have to make some tough decisions. You're going to have to make people unhappy. And I think Trump saw in his base a stirring of anti-mask um, characterizations and other things. And he played into those things, because I think he felt like a different route. And I think those three things um, were things that were, were, you know, cost us a lot of lives. In the last 20, 20 seconds here, uh, the Wuhan lab leak, if the United
1: States had, had just assumed it had come out of a lab, would there have been any way in which the response would have been different to the actual virus?
0: You know, I'm not sure about that. I don't think that, I don't think so. Look, I think we should be, first of all, nobody knows um, what 's happened yet we need this investigated. We need to we need China to be forthcoming, and we need to be very forceful about it. But to this point, nobody really knows um, what happened there our cases to be made on both sides. I agree with Dr. Gottlieb um, in his perspective that you got uh, you 've got characterizations that could go either way. interesting anecdote in the book where this was all explained to President Trump through a bedtime story. So uh, that may be a part of the book that kind of reflects on he was thinking about this.
1: And we're going to have to leave it there. Andy Slavitt, thanks so much for being with us. The book is preventable. And we turn to former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's also on the board of Pfizer and has a new book coming out called Uncontrolled Spread, Why COVID-19 Crushed Us and How We Can Defeat the Next Pandemic. He joins us from Westport, Connecticut. Good morning, Dr. Gottlieb. morning. Let's start with the Delta variant, as Elizabeth Palmer mentioned in her report. It's causing a lot of problems in the United Kingdom. The government is considering delaying the reopening for a month. The variant started in India, but now it's spreading across the world. What should we think about that in, in the United States?
6: Look, and it's going to continue to spread. It's concerning. It appears to be more transmissible. There was data out from Neil Ferguson this week showing it's about 60% more transmissible than 117, which was that old UK variant that they're now calling the alpha variant. So, this is more contagious. Um, it appears that people who get this virus have higher viral loads and they have those viral loads for longer periods of time, so they shed more virus. Right now in the United States, it's about 10% of infections. It's doubling every two weeks. So, it's probably going to become the dominant strain here in the United States. That doesn't mean that we're going to see a sharp uptick in infections, but it does mean that this is going to take over. And I think the risk is really to the fall that this could spike a new epidemic heading into the fall the vaccines seem to be effective the mrna vaccine seems seems to be highly effective two doses of that vaccine against this variant The viral vector vaccines from J&J and AstraZeneca also appear to be effective, about 60% effective. The mRNA vaccines are about 88% effective. So we have the tools to control this and defeat it. We just need to use those tools. I think in parts of the country where you have less vaccination, particularly in parts of the South, where you have some cities where vaccination rates are low, there's a risk that you could see outbreaks with this new variant. The outbreaks that are happening in the U.K. are happening around schools where you have a
1: lot of unvaccinated children. And is the the CDC director, last? Last week urged parents to vaccinate their teens, citing a rise in hospitalization among uh, 12- to 17-year-olds. Is this variant causing that? or Probably not yet. I mean, I don't think that there's enough of this variant. We
6: certainly haven't seen outbreaks with this variant in school-like settings here in the United States yet. Um, probably what's driving some of the increased infection among kids is 117. It's, it's also a more contagious variant. So it's getting into settings and infecting people who might not have been as vulnerable to the old wild-type variant that came out of Wuhan. So you're seeing a higher rate of infection among kids. And and hopefully, you know, we're going to get more kids vaccinated. The vaccines are available right now for kids 12 and above. Hopefully, there's going to be a vaccine available for kids who are younger heading into the fall. Pfizer recently started a clinical trial with a vaccine for a younger age population
1: is developing a vaccine for that age cohort as well. We've talked about the Alpha variant, the Delta variant. The world is still uh, struggling with COVID. Should we expect over the next several months to talk about more variants based on the pattern we've seen so far?
6: Yeah, it's really unclear. There's a lot of people who think that this virus has mutated rapidly over a short period of time and reached what we would call new fitness level, but it's not going to continue to mutate at this rate. It's mutating about at the rate of influenza B right now. So it's mutating as quickly as influenza B. Remember, this virus has to thread a very careful needle. It's trying to change the spike protein, which is a protein on a surface that we develop our antibodies against in a way that our antibodies no longer recognize that protein. But that spike protein is also what the virus uses to attach to the lining of our respiratory tract. So it we can't change it too much or else it no longer can latch on to ourselves so cells so it's trying to thread a very careful needle it may be that the rate of mutation of this virus starts to slow down the good news is that so far none of these variants that we've seen defeat the vaccine some of them for some of them, the vaccines are a little less effective. But the vaccines have maintained their effectiveness against all of these variants, including 617. So I'm, I don't think we're going to see a situation where we're going to wake up one day like we sometimes see with influenza, where all of a sudden our vaccine doesn't work, at least not in the foreseeable
1: future. Let me ask you about a, uh, the CDC is looking into cases of pericarditis. I think it's called. Um, is that something that people should be nervous about?
6: I think it's something that the CDC and the FDA should be looking carefully at. I don't think people should be nervous about it right now. I don't think it changes the risk benefit balance for this vaccine. Right now, these cases are clustered in uh, people 18 to 24, men more than women, about 80 percent of the cases that we've seen are men. There's been about 12 million people vaccinated between the age of 18 and 24. We've found 275 cases. It's not clear that there's a causal relationship between the vaccine and these cases. If there is, it's probably an inflammatory response from the vaccine. We know the vaccine creates an inflammatory response. A lot of these cases have happened immediately after vaccination. The vast majority have been Limiting, they've been treated with steroids or NSAIDs in certain cases. Patients haven't gotten really sick. And we also have to keep in mind that people, especially young people, are going out more. And we're seeing more outbreaks of ordinary viruses. There's actually been a spike in respiratory syncytial virus, enterovirus, echoviruses, Coxsackie viruses. So it could be the case that as young people get vaccinated, they're going out more. They're exchanging other viruses. We're seeing outbreaks of those viruses, and we know those viruses also cause pericarditis. So it's not clear that it's the vaccine or perhaps a change in behavior, but it's certainly something we should be looking closely at because we have
1: to properly inform patients if, in fact, this is a risk. So with 30 seconds left, if somebody's worried about their newly vaccinated younger person, what symptoms should they look out for if, uh, if they're concerned about pericarditis?
6: So most of the cases where we've seen pericarditis and we believe it could be an association with the vaccine have happened immediately uh, after vaccination within probably the first two or three days, mostly after the second dose. The signs and symptoms of pericarditis typically are a stabbing or a sharp chest pain that's persistent, it's positional, so it hurts more when you lay back. Sometimes it hurts when you take a deep breath because the pericardium, the lining of the heart, rubs against the chest wall, and it might be associated with a fever. Okay, Dr. Gottlieb,
1: thank you. We're out of time A major political shakeup is underway in Israel as the Knesset votes on a new government. Once confirmed, the unlikely alliance of right-wing, left-wing, centrist and Islamist parties will remove Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu from power after 12 years. CBS News senior foreign correspondent Charlie Daggett is in Jerusalem. Good morning, Charlie. What's the latest?
3: Uh, John, it has been an afternoon of high drama here at the Knesset. A lot of arguing, a lot of interruptions during these speeches, and it didn't really sound like a farewell speech from Benjamin Netanyahu, although the end is near. Uh, he really tore into this new government, uh, criticizing him, for example, saying they wouldn't have the strength to stand up against the Biden administration in terms of perhaps the resumption of talks with Iran over its nuclear program. And his final message we will be back. Now, the incoming prime minister, Naftali Bennett, he thanked Netanyahu for his service. He also thanked the United States and the Biden administration for being a continued friend to Israel. That final vote is now just moments away. In all likelihood, barring some miracle, it will be the end
1: of Benjamin Netanyahu's career, at least for now. At, le- at least for now, Charlie. And that's what I'm to ask you about. How, How did we get to this point with Netanyahu in the last— There have been four elections in two years, but this, finally, he's out.
3: Well, you know the four elections in the past couple of years didn't help there's been a lot of political volatility here and people want to see some sort of resolution it also didn't help that netanyahu is in the middle of several corruption cases so i think there was a sense on on the opposition side that there was a weakness that he was vulnerable there's been tremendous outpouring of opposition public opposition to netanyahu so that's Mm -hmm. when Neftali bennett decided to jump sides ideologically speaking, and become part of this uh, coalition party. It is a broad coalition, from the far left to the far right, and includes an Arab-Islamist party for the first time. So just keeping that party together will be something of a miracle. Uh, Naftali Bennett will be the first prime minister. If they survive for the first two years, it will then uh, be handed over. Uh, But, yes, in terms of whether this is the end of Benjamin Netanyahu, he remains the leader of the largest political party here at the Knesset, just not enough to garner enough support against the opposition. It is razor thin. We are talking about one seat that divides them.
1: Well, high drama indeed, Charlie Daggett in Jerusalem. Thanks so much, Charlie. We want to remind viewers CBS News will carry live special coverage of President Biden's summit in Geneva with Russian President Vladimir Putin this Wednesday, June 16th. That's it for Face the Nation. Thanks so much for being with us. I'm John Dickerson, we'll see you next week. Today's guests were Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Maine Republican Senator Susan Collins, former White House Senior Advisor for COVID Response, Andy Slavitt, and former FDA Commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation we're online at facethenation.com and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS radio news on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network CBSN at 10:30 a.m. 1 p.m and 4 p.m Eastern free Sunday
0: Hey Prime members you can listen to Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan ad free on Amazon music
1: download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery
4: Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.